Hello and welcome to Real Talk with Benno. I am joined today by 16-time Group 1 winning jockey Simon Marshall. Simon, thanks for coming on the show. How are you, mate? Good on you, Benno. I was very excited when I got your invite, mate. So uh, let's rip in. <laughs> nah, thanks, mate. It's, you've, been on the, you've been on the list for a while now, so I was glad we were able to tee this one up. Um, we'll get stuck straight in. Being a jockey, it's a pretty unique experience, something that not all of us get the opportunity to do through build and weight and skill set. I mean, how did you get, obviously your old man was a hoop. How did you get stuck in? How early did the industry bite you? Yeah, it was, I was lucky enough to be born in the game. So as you mentioned, my father rode as a jockey. He suffered a fall at the age of just 32 years of age. Uh, wasn't able to gain a clearance to race ride again. Um, so turned his hand to training thoroughbreds. Um, so ever since uh, I can remember three, four years of age, I was walking in between the legs of horses and working in a stable. So uh, you could say I was probably born on one. <laughs> what's, what's the feeling like on top, on top of a horse? Obviously, they're, they're incredible animals. They're going at incredible speeds. What, take us into that yeah. feeling of being on top of some of the best horses in the game. Yeah, it is quite remarkable. And that's the reason that a lot of young men and women actually fall in love with uh, riding thoroughbreds and want to become an apprentice jockey. From that uh, first time you jump on, you can just feel this uh, this animal that's in full control, but powerful. Um, and just the feeling when you slot into the in the saddle on their back, it's uh, it's it's very hard to describe. But when I was flying along as an apprentice, I'll take you back to when I was 17 years of age. I was having a bit of, a lot of luck, and my mates were saying, "Oh, mate, you're flying along," and they loved sort of following me in the races and having a punt and that sort of thing. What's it like sitting on a horse? And uh, we lived on a little bit of land down at uh, Devon Meadows, uh, 7K south of Cranbourne. And so five and a half acres and two of it was just uh, paddock. We had a uh, paddock bomb, old car. So I said, come on, boys, come down and I'll show you what it's like to uh, sit on a horse, what it feels like, what the closest you'll get to it by not riding a horse. Yeah. So I told them to all go and stand on the roof of the uh, paddock bomb, the old car. Squat down like a jockey, put your hands on your knees, bend down, lean forward. Stand on the roof there, and then I'll start driving the car and clipping up to about 40, 50 clicks, and then we'll go through the paddock, and you just stay down there like a jockey, and that'll be the feel. I reckon I, well, Ben, I reckon I got up to about 15, 20 clicks, and they all just packed their dacks and scaredy catted out of it. But um, it was the motion and the feel. And I didn't stop, by the way. I drove it fast enough so they all fell off the roof. But um, <laughs> that's the type of feel. If you want to know what it's like to ride like a jockey, stand, it's, it's dangerous, kids at home. Don't try it. But uh, stand on the, on the roof of the car and get it up to 60 kilometres per hour while it's rolling around the paddock. And that's the type of feel. How, Pretty how scary. Much, yeah, it's, it's unbelievable. It's not something I, I would recommend anyone doing, but it is... For those that are lucky enough, it's an unbelievable skill set. How, how difficult it is to control the horse. Obviously, some of them seem to know what they're doing. There are some smart ones out there. There are some that just seem to have absolutely no idea. How difficult is it for you if you're on the back of something moving so fast, looking for gaps, trying to control that animal? Yeah, it is, it is a technique that you need to master. And it's a combination of things because you're dealing with the animal itself that uh, has a mind. Um, and a brain intends to think differently to what you do under certain circumstances and under pressure of uh, being in, in, involved or being in the middle of a field of 16 other runners, yeah. with 16 other jockeys in them. Um, so for one, it's a very, very light uh, piece of steel that runs through a horse's mouth. And you know, either side of 
of a horse's mouth. It's very soft. We call it the power steering because they've got their pinches, their front teeth that they pick up uh, their food with and pick grass with. And then there's a gap by about that much. And then they've got their molars, their chewers, their grinders. So that piece of steel sits in that mouth right there. And that's your steering gear. And it's very, very soft on a horse's mouth and they react to it. So you've really got to understand and respect that first and foremost. Secondly, yeah. you've got to tap into the animal and make sure that they're really cool, calm and collected underneath you. It's like going and meeting a dog, someone else's dog for the first time. If you yeah. talk to it in a nice, nice, kind voice, give it a pat and, and gain its uh, trust and attention, you know the dog's going to play with you and you're not going to get bitten. Yeah. Same thing when you jump on a horse. Try and do that on the ground before you get up on top of them. And then when you're going fast, mate, it's just uh, a lot of close your eyes, pray and hope for the best. <laughs> are, there, are there smart horses? Do you think there are horses that get it more than others? Is that, the, is that one of the big difference in class? 100%. Those horses are the elite uh, athletes and group one winners or horses that win more than not because they understand that's their purpose. That's, um, but they love that competitive nature of wanting to race other horses, go as fast as they can for as long as they can. And uh, they're very special animals, those, those type of animals, because not every one of them you can train that into to be a competitive beast, want to pin its ears back, try its guts out for you and win and beat every other runner. Were there any of those real smart ones that you got on the back of? What were some of the best ones you rode in your time? I loved uh, my memories with horses like a horse called Never Under Charge, who I'd won uh, six races in a row on, including his benchmarks. And then he won a Group 3 Angus Brute uh, at over six furlongs in Adelaide for Bart Cummings. So those picket fence horses are very special. Um, Shiver's Revenge. So Never Under Charge ended up winning, uh, ended up winning a uh, Manicato Stakes on him at Group 1 level when he had a spell after winning a Stradbroke. Uh, which I didn't ride him on, but so he was a special horse. Shira's Revenge was another special horse that I think I won five or six in a row on, including a St. Ledger, a South Australia Derby at Group 1 level for Bar Cummings. And as we know, he was a very good stayer later on. Trista Love uh, won a South Australian Oaks for Bart Cummings. I won about four or five in a row on her. Um, once you tap into these horses, and my favourite horse of all time would have been Durbridge, which I won a stack of races, four group ones on him. And he was a very, very special horse. But they all have their own little mannerisms and idiosyncrasies there where you know what they liked on race day and you know what they didn't like. But most of these horses, competitive horses that I spoke about of then, they like to stay away from other horses. When you jump in the mounting yard and you go out onto the track, I like to keep them away and just get them to switch off a little bit and try and harness that nervous energy yeah. before you get locked up and confined in a barrier and then go out and race. Every one of those, I made sure I spent a little bit of time on race day uh, on purpose of riding away from the other horses, going an extra furlong in my warm-up and just me and the horse relaxing, tapping into their energies, patting them, talking to them nice and kindly. Because once I'd tapped in, to them mentally on race day, I knew I could control them and they were with me and they'd go and do what I wanted them to do. Yeah, awesome. Did you find those those longer preps that you had with horses when you were able to bring them from benchmark level, maybe up to group level, were they more rewarding than say a one-off big win? Was it more rewarding when you got to stick with the horse for the prep? Absolutely, because it's the journey of molding what is a just a piece of canvas, if you like, and then just adding to that to make it a masterpiece in the end. It's as simple as that because these horses 
They trust that you um, uh, have the full confidence in them to, to steer them in the right direction, to build their fitness up. They get fed, they get washed. But more importantly, when they're going fast, it's a fine line to uh, ruin a horse's mouth and have them have a bad experience, to make them shift really quickly, bump with other horses. And we, we see a lot of horses don't come back from being bumped in a race because mentally they switch off. They don't like it. So it's up to you to pilot that path for them where they're always confident. And when they're always confident and they understand that that's the same voice on their back every morning that they're going fast or you're asking them to do something new, they trust that they've got the right jockey on, they know who you are, so let's go run through some brick walls. Talk, we'll talk about the Spring Carnival quickly now. Obviously, it's, a, it's unlike anything else in this country, sporting-wise, I think the spectacle of it. But the Melbourne Cup is in of itself, whether you're a racing fan or just a casual viewer, I think everyone, it's the rest of the nation, everyone has time for it. Can you take us in to Cup Day and then we'll touch on the rest of the carnival as we go. But Melbourne Cup Day, what's that like at 3 o'clock on the first Tuesday of November? Well, it's, it's the one race that divine, defines our sport in many ways, to be honest, because it's a race that stops the nation. As history will suggest, Australia gets around that race. Um, most uh, part-time punters or the once-time um, um, people that have a bet once a year is the Melbourne Cup with the Calcutta's, the Barbies, all that sort of stuff. So the focus is really on it. And as a... Um, as a registered racing person, you feel as though it's upon you to, to go and represent your sport as best you can. So if you're involved in riding a Melbourne Cup horse along the way, you try and do everything as, uh, as right as you possibly can to get that horse to peak, to run its best and uh, do well on the big stage because there's a lot of eyes on you. So there's many pressures from trainers, uh, the seven days a week staff that spend with these horses to conditioning them to get the miles and the legs to run 3,200 metres and then to cope with the day as well, the pressure and, and a lot of noise. He said it's, it's the defining event of our sport. It, it does get a lot of eyes, both positively and negatively, every year. It's right in the news. Ooh. Obviously, some massive changes have been implemented for this year after Anthony Van Dyke last year. What are your thoughts on the changes brought in? I think it's... It's an evolution of continue to get better in any in your sport. It's a message where it's it's happened too many times. So let's do something about it. So uh, there's a lot of noise about it, and I think it's the right noise at the moment to try and get um, the um, I suppose qualifying conditions a little better and favourable for horses that come and compete from overseas. Um, I'm glad we're talking about it because one thing we don't want is deaths with any horse on any given day outside of a Melbourne Cup. So we work very hard in our industry outside of a Melbourne Cup to get that right. But as well as, um, well, it's, it's a big stage. It's worldwide now, the Melbourne Cup. So I think it's very healthy. Unfortunately, unfortunately, it's something that does happen in our sport when horses break down because they're athletes, injuries, sport, and with humans as well. Um, so. It's very, very healthy, uh, the discussion that we're having now to try and make the terms better for horses that are going to compete in that race to stop um, a fatality. Do you think it'll deter internationals from coming down, the different conditions now, maybe the one lead-up race? Do you think it'll deter internationals or will everyone adjust as they, as they normally do? My personal opinion to that question, Benno, is that I'm not an international, so it's very hard for me to answer that. But I take, I take the advice and I listen very closely to a bloke. There was one person, if you ask me the question, 
there's one person that you could interview and ask about these conditions now, these new conditions, as an international raider um, about uh, the circumstances, it would be Dermot Weld. Uh, he's a vet. He's a fully qualified vet. He's a he's a an amazing horse trainer. He's won our Melbourne Cup twice. The first, the inaugural winner, international to win it, and uh, with Vintage Crop and then Media Puzzle, he's won the race as well when uh, Ollie rode him a treat. Um, he he knows the right horse to bring, and his answers to these questions that you're asking me now was that uh, I think it's fantastic that they've included these new rules. I think that uh, it makes us as international raiders that want to target a Melbourne Cup uh, to think better about the horse that we bring that's a sound horse that can handle some hard tracks but also tactical conditions of the Melbourne Cup. I loved what he had to say about it and he was uh, full support. Absolutely. I think, I, think, I think it's the right step. The industry is obviously optically always under, under the spotlight around that time of year. So I think any movements the industry can make to look better to the casual punter and show that we're people in racing trying to do the right thing by the animal is always a good step. Um, but as, as an outsider uh, and, and a fan of racing, you're a fan of racing. Yeah. Um, what are your thoughts when you see a horse uh, break down in a Melbourne cup? It's yeah, it's the worst thing. I, I was on Anthony Van Dyke last year and I, it doesn't matter whether you're on the horse or not, but I, it was for my first thought was, Oh, this isn't going to look good for the industry. Like, and my first thought was there are people doing very good work. And it's a spotlight that the industry doesn't need. Like it's just another bit of negative light that it's going to get published. And it takes away from all the good work that's being done all the way through the year on this one day, something happens and yeah, the negative negative press comes from it, which is warranted of course. But uh, yeah, I was looking at, oh, there's so many people doing good work right across the industry that now won't get highlighted when maybe that day should be about highlighting them. Yeah. And you think it's a great thing that we're discussing this and we're making it harder. Do you think it's, do you think we're making it harder for international raiders and what you've read and what we've, what we've learned from it? Or do you think it's, I think it's uh, that's just a, a better uh, purpose now for them to get it right and bring the right horse. What, what are your takings away from what we're doing now as an industry? It, it, it might be harder right now because it's new, but if we're making steps to keep horses safe and to prevent these deaths, then all for it, we can't be, taking risks with these animals lives like we love these animals and they give us incredible entertainment and right. an incredible spectacle and we need to do everything we can to look after them and if we're making step if it does make it harder for now fine you know people can deal with it because the mm. horse's safety is paramount and i guess the reason for that is mate we just want to make our sport better don't we and keep yep. keep uh, keep putting the show on the road yeah that, good that's exactly right so we look at the spring carnival Personally, for me, Guinea's Day is Christmas Day. Caulfield Guinea's Day. It is Christmas cool. Day for me. For you, what's what's the day? Both as a punter and a rider, what's what's your favourite day? Yeah, Caulfield Guinea's Day is right up there for sure. But I always love, just love the first day of uh, uh, four days of fabulous Flemington Derby Day. I thought Derby Day just had um, you know the four Group Ones. I think we got to five Group Ones there at one stage mm. from memory. Uh, I know we've tinkered with it now to try and make it better with the McKinnon Stakes coming back. But I'm a traditionalist. I love the old Derby Day to kick off the four days of Flemington. Reason being is uh, the three-year-old classic, you had the sprint on uh, back in the day. You had, um, um, I think it was the, the, the mile race. You had a number of races, the Meyer classic. You had a number of these races that all led into you being able to back up, whether it be Oaks Day, and also stakes day within the seven days yeah. as well. And just fantastic group one racing right across the board um, where 
a lot of interstate raiders would come and challenge. But um, I loved the day too because of the carnival atmosphere outside of punters flocking to Flemington and getting dressed up and getting right amongst it. Yeah, the black and white of Derby Day I think is an awesome look. When you stand, when you're up in the stands at Flemington, you can look out and see all the black and white. I think it's an incredible optic, but it it always seems to rain Derby Day. Over the last few years, it's always it's always wet Derby Day because guaranteed water. Yeah, it's been a few good years, but I suppose lately, yeah, it's uh, been a, a dampen a dampening uh, day on it. But um, ah, well, mate, you just got to toughen up and be a real strong Aussie. Eh? Pace yeah. yourself. Get the punk shows on. Um, so John, your, your early retirement, which was one that I think took the industry, shot the bit of the industry. Obviously you are, you struggle with weight issues right throughout your riding career. And then coming over, um, I read that you collapsed in the jockey's room at Caulfield. Um, take us into that. Obviously you've then had to, you have to leave something you've loved since you were a little kid. How, how, how did that impact you? Um, it's, there was many, there, there, for one, I was cooked and I need, I should have retired a little earlier than what I did. But just the fact that there was nothing really that motivated me to move on to that could fill or, or partly fill the hole and the gap and the routine of race day riding and being able to get on a group one horse every year, there was nothing really going to replace that. And that scared the bejeebas out of me, to be honest, scared the shit out of me. So I didn't want to leave it. So that's why I hung on for a couple of years longer than what I did. But when I say I was cooked mentally and physically, just imagine... Uh, going back to when you're 15 years of age and you sign on to a job and and that job is partly stunting your growth to make a certain weight seven days of the week um, and you make that your lifestyle. So basically, I needed to lose three quarters of a kilo the first day I rode at the races at Yarra Glen when I was 15 and six months. I gained my licence to ride. And uh, my lightest ride that day was 51 kilos. I had a three kilo claiming allowance. I needed to ride 48 with that allowance. To ride 48, you needed to be two kilos under the 48 to allow for all your gear to weigh in as a jockey. Gurser, singles, saddle, boots, whatever you're wearing. Uh, So I needed to be 46 stripped. My father put me on the scales on that Saturday morning and I was 47, 15 and six months. I needed to go and sit into a, a hot bath um, with um, uh, electric salts and he brought the heater element in, heated the bathroom up, in I went and I needed to lose three quarters of a kilo and I was 15 and six months to make the weight. My first day on the job to be getting paid what I was doing. Yeah. Um, that was a, a harsh reality of, well, this is going to be your life if you choose it to be, son. My old man said. Shortly after that, I was introduced to a naturopath and a dietitian, and then I was on uh, a, what was a uh, a diet for the rest of my life to try and remain as light as I could for as long as I could. But unfortunately for me, it was only eleven years. Yeah, what well, you spoke about some of those extreme measures, and that's they're unfathomable for someone like me who hasn't had to worry about that kind of stuff. But what were some of the most extreme measures you had to take in those eleven years to make weight? Oh, I reckon my worst day would have been, um, I got a call from um, the Lees boys, horse called Innocent King, which Jimmy Cassidy was riding. Um, he was a Guineas winner, Rosal, or, or Randwick Guineas winner. He's coming over for the Eclipse Stakes. He wasn't quite the horse he was at the time to win an Eclipse Stakes. 
because uh, of his injuries. But um, Jimmy couldn't ride him. I was out on on uh, an enforced break. He had 56 and a half. I was riding him work and actually um, Jimmy had one on him leading into the eclipse and I told him he was just flying. He was a certainty and he won like it. And then I couldn't, uh, Jim couldn't ride him. He got suspended or he had other opportunities in town. And the boys just said, we don't want to put anyone else on him. You have to ride him. You've done all the work on him in track work. Uh, you need to ride him at 56 and a half kilos. Now I was 61 kilos uh, seven days out of this. So to lose that weight, to be 55 stripped from 61 kilos in a matter of a week um, was one of the hardest things that um, I, it was silly doing it. But I knew that the, um, the bone was there, the pot of gold was there, the horse was the right horse. And um, I made it happen, but I cut myself in half. Uh, I was dehydrated to the max. I think I lost two and a half kilos the day before mowing lawns at my parents' property on acreage as a hand push lawn mower. And I wore a skivvy. I wore a, um, a dry cleaner a plastic bag, T-shirt, dry cleaner, plastic bag, jumper, ski jacket, waterproof pants, ski pants. And it was about uh, 24 degrees, 25 degrees. And I went and mowed lawns for about an hour and a half with all that gear on, dropped that two and a half kilos, have to put three quarters of a kilo of fluid and a little bit of food in your mouth overnight, get up, ride track work from four o'clock in the morning through to seven o'clock in the morning with that sweat gear on, trying to lose that three quarters of a kilo once again after you've dropped five already, six kilos already. And then have to sit in a sauna to lose seven ounces for about 40, I know it was 48 minutes because um, the on-course doctor was concerned that I was in there for so long and hadn't had a break. And that was just to drop seven ounces. I was in a sauna for 48 minutes for. So... All that marathon, losing all of that weight and then going out and riding a horse over 1,800 metres at Caulfield was, I ended up getting pulled up. He ended up winning by half head, short half head. He ended up winning. The result was good, but I couldn't pull the horse up. Clark, of course, had to stop me. And uh, I just went into waiting and then just lied on the bed in the jockey's room. And that was just painful. It was just painful. You, you just you shouldn't be riding like that when you're yeah. dehydrated. And you've punished yourself for that long, but they're the extremes that um, you know you that uh, I, I made a decision to to do. Do you think jockeys get enough recognition in from sport fans in general for being the incredible athletes they are? Obviously, we talk about the horses being the incredible athletes they are, but the sacrifices in lifestyle jockeys make. Do you think they get enough appreciation from the wider sporting community? Uh, it's a very difficult question. I think punters are very peripatetic in the way they think about a jockey. They're all over the shop. They're with them. They're not. Uh, they love them. They, oh, he needs to do this. They have peaks, their troughs. But it's a, it's a brutal sport. It's a brutal sport. And having lived it, there's so many emotions going through. You can imagine getting on, a, on, on an out-of-control horse or a horse that could be out of control. Every day you go to races, you're followed by a, an ambulance. You've got punters, volumes of millions and millions of dollars of money on you to get 12 seconds over, 16, over 1,200 metres right in just one day on one horse against 16 other competitors. Yeah. That's like driving down a freeway at peak hour and you're trying to get to work and you're 10 minutes late. That's what jockeys are under pressure. That's the type of pressure that jockeys, excuse me, are under every day they ride. It's like you're stuck in um, peak hour traffic, you're 10 minutes late, and if you don't get to work, you're going to lose your job. That's the thought that I had every day I went to the races. 
and I was riding a horse. I've got to get this right. I've got to get this right. The pressures that are put under jockeys this day and age, and the highs are highs, but the lows are they're troughs that um, you've got to try and battle your way through. You talk about the lows. Obviously, across sport now, across the world, we're seeing social media harassment being called out. Racing, like Twitter space especially, can you said jockeys can cop a bit because punters are putting money in and obviously they're then lashing out if, they're not, if they feel their jockey hasn't given their horse the best chance or whatever. Do you feel that's something that the racing, if like the top end of racing, are looking at dealing with better for jockeys or is it something that still hasn't been covered as well yet? And you know, it's like this, you want to put yourself out there on social media, you've got to be, pe- be prepared to get clipped because it's not all going to be happy and positive news. Um, punters, and what my experience is with social media this day and age, and it's a beast in which we live in, and, we, it's, and it, there's good and there's bad, um, is that um, a lot of it's a lot of it, I reckon about 80% of it would be negative. Yeah. There wouldn't be too many days that every week that a jockey on, on Twitter, let's just say, would be driving home without somebody bagging them for some reason or not. Um, but if you're, if you're um, prepared and mould yourself and prepare yourself in a way to handle that, and there's ways of handling uh, social and media, you can read it and you can believe it or you can just fob it off and let it pass, block that person that's quite negative and angry and, and really personal. Uh, or use it in a way where you're promoting your sport as best as you can in a positive light. And I think that's what it's best used for. Who do you reckon are the best ones at promoting the sport, whether it be jockeys, maybe even trainers, but who, or even owners? Who are the best people in racing at promoting the sport, do you think? Out and out, uh, hands down, Gay Waterhouse has been our best promoter since I've been alive in this game. Since I started in 86 as an apprentice jockey, I've just remembered Gay Waterhouse promoting our industry like no other. She's phenomenal, her work ethic, uh, to be a leading uh, Sydney Premiership trainer um, and multiple times, to build a business the way she has, but promote it, bring owners in, um, help groom young men and women in a stable environment that work underneath her and work in a stable, and jockeys, not only as a tactician and rider horses, but also how to present, how to speak, what to wear. She's just a phenomenon. And um, I really, really love the way uh, Gay Waterhouse goes about it. Yeah, I think there's no doubt her name will forever sit um, in racing folklore. She has been incredible for the sport. Yeah. She's synonymous with it now. Yeah. Um, so we talked about retiring from riding. Was you then moved into the media space? Was that something that was on that was on your mind um, a long way? You see, you didn't really have a plan. Was it a seamless transition, or did someone have to come tap you on the shoulder and say, "Hey, come try this out"? I, I enjoy uh, talking to people. Uh, I left school when I was 14 years of age um, I, and I didn't have the discipline to sit there and um, take in what was being taught at school. I, I had another uh, vision in life and that was to get outside and work. I was fortunate enough I was good at uh, riding horses at an early age and knew that when I was riding track work from the age of 12, 12 13, 14, leading into the 15 years of age where I was able to leave school. Um, so at 14, uh, I leave school, which is three months, the back end of it. If you, uh, I should have gone back to school in three months, but we had an understanding principal who loved to punt and he knew. So off you get Simon Riders with just a long extended uh, leave note. Yeah. Um, so, um, look, it's, um, mate, to be honest, um, what was the question again? 
did moving into the media, was that a seamless transition or did someone have to kind of tap you on the shoulder and bring you in? Sorry, mate. I forgot where I was going there. <laughs> um, you're right. I'm thinking about that in a way where I found my way into it. I, I, what I wanted to explain to you is yeah. my education is the different walks of life of people that I work, worked with in racing. Yeah. You see, you get so many people that uh, own horses, thoroughbred horses, and they're from so many different walks of life. Politicians like Andrew Peacock, who was a dear friend, uh, Alan Jones, um, a butchers from Ballarat, um, uh, concreters, Matty McMillan and these guys that I rode for, uh, Mario and Diane Zanetti that own restaurants. You sit down and you, and you have 10 minutes, 20 minutes with these people that own their horses and you ask them about life and you ask them about their business yeah. And that's where my education came from, and I yeah. found that fascinating. So I'd take 10 minutes of Andrew Peacock, who was talking about politics and what would happen, and I'd ask him, give me something that's going to break next week. And then I'd go to track work and tell Lee Friedman, Bart Cummings, this is going to happen, rah, rah, and just talk outside of racing, and they'd go, Pfft. and then all of a sudden it's front-page news, political world blows up. Yeah. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, this bloke, you know. But So I took that advantage and learnt that early doors from the elder statesman. Then I learned the gift of the gab, how to sell yourself, how to tell a story. I gained allocution lesson. Not that it worked too well for me, but um, allocution in public speaking, yeah. how to deliver a story and how to speak about yourself and your industry. And I loved that side of it. And then I thought following in the footsteps of the great Roy Higgins, who was just on 927 radio, did part-time work on Seven Sport and that sort of stuff, but there'd been nobody really that had uh, worked in the industry and then uh, presented it in a way in the media. And I sort of, I just fell into it along the way and targeted it and then I was given a couple of opportunities and then Channel 7, uh, Tony Jones, Lou Richards were my mentors. Yeah. Uh, when, I, when I stopped from race riding in 97 Ian Johnson who was head of Channel 9 God bless him at the time took a punt on me just to give me an apprenticeship for six months so Tony Jones and Lou Richards were my mentors and then they sent me out and my last year of riding in 96 to uh, conduct six weeks of interviews um, and and learn how to how to um, interview somebody how to package that up with uh, a film crew audio guy and then come back and chop it up channel nine news and if it was any good we'd use it on the news and one of those was um a, a story that i was able to complete on uh, jezebel who okay. i chose to win the melbourne cup that year and brian jenkins and uh, we ended up winning a media award for that presentation that three minute special on nine's news yeah so then i knew this is this could be something and i was cooked as i mentioned 96 97 i stopped started with Channel 9 and I got a taste of it, work, walking around the Channel 9 corridors, working with some of the greats uh, and then presenting some stories uh, was something that I wanted to uh, develop there. Nice. You mentioned Jezebel there. I'll, I'll have to butt in with the story of my own here. So dad was yeah. the one that got me on the punt big time um, and I would have been only a little tag at the time, but he asked me, who, who do I want? And I picked Champagne. Um, yeah. Dad said, no, no, Jezebel. And I said, no, Dad, champagne. So he went and put uh, a fiver on for me and still did the, I can still remember the call of that Melbourne Cup of champagne, Jezebel. And obviously Jezebel got up and Dad was through the roof. I was livid. And I reckon that was the first taste of being really hurt by the punt. But that's my first, earliest memory of <laughs> betting is Je champagne, Jezebel, right. Melbourne Cup. Right. Great story. Now, remember the Caulfield Cup where they both got hammered mm. by Torfoon's 
Yeah. Yeah, Ray Cochran, the jockey. Ah, fantastic. But she was just too strong, just our stage champagne. She had the better turn of foot. Yeah, absolutely. Too good. Yeah, it was, a, it was a killer. And I don't think I've ever recovered from it, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> so, obviously, yeah, yeah, launched into the media career and you've become one of the faces of racing, I think, especially in Victoria. Um, and then on racing.com now, I think, obviously, probably that, that channel's feature show is Get On. And yeah. uh, a key part of that. How, how's that to be a part of? I mean, it looks incredible from this side of the screen. Well, first and foremost, it's uh, one of our favourite hours of the week where the boys just get together. Obviously, um, we put in the work. We've done the work, the studies for the weekend's racing. And then it's just an hour to blow it all off, blow yeah. some steam off, have a chin wag, have a banner, take the piss, uh, have a giggle, take one another on. And it just goes so quick. Um, there's, of course, there's a rundown sheet for something that uh, in a one-hour show that we need to stick to to keep yeah. us straight. But, oh, mate, some of the stuff in between the uh, commercial breaks too is just uh, gold, absolute gold. But Richo steers the ship extremely well. Uh, Cambo's Gambo. He's just a, been a great stalwart, Matty Campbell, over the uh, years. Yeah. Playing footy, commentating on footy, and he just loves racing. He's a mad punter. And then Hutchie from Hong Kong, he's just a, he's just a unique cat himself. And BZ, who's just hardcore racing and punting, mate. He just, he just loves it. So you feed off every one of them for whatever they bring to the table. And for some unknown reason, lights, camera, action, get on, bang. Just a little bit of magic happens every show for some unknown reason. Is it a little bit of lightning in the bottle with just you guys all together? It's just a chemistry that is unmatched at the minute? Yeah, I think it's, I think it's the chemis- chemistry. We make ourselves accountable and um, in a way where it's fun and we laugh. Uh, win, lose, or draw, we're together on it. And uh, it's the same in a similar show here at Sportsbet and three wide, no cover, yeah. uh, where we just get to we study the races and then just uh, have a chat about it, take one another on, try and predict the future, have some fun with it along the way. And that's, that's a show that I'm really proud of as well, which is we're developed to an audio sort of podcast style to now on racing.com mainstream. And uh, it's just great fun to be a part of. How much, how much effort goes into uh, the quaddying show each week? Oh, would you believe it? It's just something that it's, uh, I can't explain this, mate, apart from what are we going to do this week? What should we do this week? Oh, what's happening at the time? It's winter. It's this. It's uh, this Italian fellow I ran into the other day. So many people stop you in the street and ask you about it. So the Luigi Calamari thing was absolutely hilarious. Uh, seagulls. Seagulls is just something that just <laughs> blew into our world and, who would have thought Nigel was one of the most oh, popular? And the, uh, Deborah, the Never, Neville and Pamela who blow up because they don't get a mention. But, mate, the, 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 quaddy, the quaddy intros now are just another beast on its own. And we, for some unknown reason, we come up with something every week with a good mate, Maddie, um, who works in audio there on Get On. It's, it's, uh, it's ridiculous. I don't know how we do it. <laughs> um, so you love it? Oh, it's, it's one of my favourites. And I think Dad put me on years ago. Um, but now it's just, it's hardcore viewing for me Thursday night. Even if I'm not having a bet on the weekend, I still make sure I'm watching it because what else am I going to do with that hour? Nothing is going to match that. Great feedback, mate. Love it. Beautiful. Um, so your, your form, are there any things, when you're doing form um, going into a weekend, a big meeting, is that, what are the things you're looking for? What are the things you pay most attention to? And perhaps what are the things maybe that you don't take so much notice of? Yeah, I love one thing I've learned through working with Julesy Valencia, who's a guru. He really uh, analytically studies it on a different light. Where I come in from a background where I like to ride horse, and I still still talk of the way 
and, and my tips are this is the horse that I want to ride in the race because of the way it sets up, um, uh, the way that the trainer's trending, a jockey-trainer combination now is a big key. Your distance, your barriers, your good jockeys are, are most important. But then basically for me, my, my go-to is tactics in a race, who I'm trying to outride, who are my hardest to beat, five or six hardest to beat, where they're going to be in the race. And then I just try and come up with a plan of how this is going to develop on the day based on track conditions and so forth. And then I go off my gut feeling. Yeah. We're all trying to predict the future when we're, when we're yeah. talking about a horse winning a race. Don't get me wrong. But um, uh, it goes a lot deeper than that. But I just try and keep it basic when I have my final decision. And is there anything that you think maybe punters overvalue? Is there anything that punters look too much into? Uh, trials can get you. Yeah. Trials can get you. Horses trialling too well. The Sir Dragon uh, one in the autumn, I think, was the one that caught me out when it, it blitzed the trial and then went to Caulfield and just for, didn't, didn't run on at all. That was the one. Great example. Great example. Two-year-olds winning trials by 10 lengths. I think it was one of Stokesy's in Adelaide there that was ripping it up. And um, anyway, when it, I think they kept it for the Merson Cooper and it came over here and it could only run 600 metres. So you've just got to be careful with trials. But I think with trials, the one lesson that I've learned throughout time is know the stable and how they like their horses to trial. Snowdens are just always on the bridle and they've kept something up their sleeve. Hawkses are the same. They're not out there to light it up, but they're out there just to trial really well within themselves. And if they happen to win a trial really easy, well, it must be a special horse because they're not out there to, to blow them up. Uh, Hazy can trial. Uh, Lindsay Park's been synonymous uh, trialling their horses uh, too well. Um, and there's a few other trainers that just love to go out there and win a trial. But a lot of their, uh, 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 they, they might win one race, but they just don't hold up then longevity and put those picket fences together. Yeah. So you've got to really study the stables and how they like their horses to trial and predict that that day is the right day for that horse in that, from that trial. So have you, have you found a new love of the industry now going from riding to punter and analyst? Is there a new love for it now? Yeah, there is, because you never stop learning. There's so much to learn in this game. And the day you think you've got it down pat's the day you're just going to do your balls on the punt. It's as yeah. simple as that. You'll like your form guy. I've got all my notes here and of a weekend's racing and whatnot. It just looks so good on paper. But the one thing I've learned throughout my time is horses never win on paper. <laughs> I've never seen a horse win on paper. They go out there under the elements, the wind, the rain, the track conditions. They get a squeeze after going 100 metres out of a barrier or whatnot. And it does your head in every time you walk away. I can't, I can't remember <clears throat> too many people walking away and having the perfect day on a race course. Yeah. You know, there's always something there to just say, hey, it's just, you know, uh, be humble with the wins. That uh, you've got to respect uh, the defeats. Yeah, I think because I, I, do, I do my own form and I ship it out to all my mates and, um, and have a page on the Instagram and it, it always looks great and always I'll go to the races and I pull, pull out my little form, my little logo on it and I feel as confident as ever looking at that. But you're right, I mean, it takes one thing, one misjump, one bit of inclement weather that we didn't plan for and it, it all can just, it can go out the window. So I think, yeah, it's an incredibly yeah. difficult game and you said humbling, I think it's the key word. You're never as good as it seems, it's never as bad as it seems, but it always finds a way to, to get you if you get too ahead of it the punt. Yeah. So I guess the, it's very true. It's very, very true. You've got a really good gut feeling about it because you put in the work and it's just like you've got this buzz about yourself and then all of a sudden you just get let down. It's like, 
oh, I can't believe that happened today. It wasn't meant to happen for some unknown reason it did. But one thing I've learned too with the punters, respect it. It's your money. Um, and if a horse is too short, it's too short. But if it's overs on the price that you think it should be, that's the sort of push now. Less bets, more horses over the price. Um, uh, less bets, those horses that are longer in the uh, on the price that you predict that it probably should uh, that that it looks at that it is right now. Yeah, it's all you've got to be taken overs, mate. Yeah, I think that's something I learned mainly in the spring. I think I was probably betting in most races, and I was finding that I might have some really good wins, but I was coming out even or just a touch up and not as up as I think I would be from winning maybe three or four. And because the three yeah. or four I'm winning on are paying maybe three dollars, maybe four, maybe five. And they're coming in either unders or what I have them at. And I've, I've learned throughout that period that I've, I feel like I'm having great days, but I'm not making much yep. profit here. I need to find, I need to be finding value somewhere. Yep. Yep. Well, that's, I think that's the key. So whatever that horse's price is, if you think it's, um, if, if you think it should be shorter than that, take the overs, mate. And I, I, that's the sort of lesson that I'm learning as we go along. Yeah. I think it, I think that's I think that's great advice as well, and it gives you more time to enjoy the day as well. I think I find myself if I'm betting in eight or nine races, it's a pretty stressful yep. time between races, checking the market, yep. especially at the track as well. It's a bit of chaos. So I, I have a couple of mates that are like that. They love betting in every race. They just can't help themselves. Right, they're desperate. I mean, good on them. But um, if you if, if, if out of a card, if you pluck your one or two best bets and you're taking the overs on them, they're, they're the right price. You have, your, you have your decent bet in those races, I, I, I explain to them now. But if you want to have a bet in every race, and instead of it being 500, just have five bucks on it. Yeah. And if it yeah. wins, if it wins, you've still got five bucks on it. You'll cheer it like you've got 500 yeah. on it because you're a lunatic anyway. Yeah. But it, it's, you know what I mean? It's still, yeah. you're, you're, trying, you're back in your own judgment, but... It's uh, it's very hard. It's your money, mate. You you spend it how you want to at the end. Yeah, of it. I think that's the key. I think you you find a way that you can enjoy the punt, how you can enjoy it responsibly. I think that's the key. That if you can find a way to enjoy it, that's that's your Correct. way. Um, You're taking it there to lose. Yeah, <laughs> we've talked about the Melbourne Cup changes. Um, just want to touch on another. Obviously, whip restrictions are something that have been spoken about for a very long time. You yourself, yeah. as a jockey, relied on the influencers so heavily throughout your time. How much of a safety guide is it for you as a hoop? And how should we as a sport be looking to, to implement it? Are there changes that need to be made? Or is it should the jockeys almost have a free reign on it to keep themselves safe? Yep, it's a, it's a hot topic. Um, to me, it's all teachings, the right teachings uh, as, a, as a young person. You've got to teach a young person that, the whip is a persuader for the beast to concentrate yeah. and to try and do their best under the circumstances in which they're trained. They're born and bred and trained to run as fast as they can for as long as they can. When they, get, when they start losing their way and, and their mannerisms and thinking and thought um, processes in races and in track work and trials and then race day, the persuader is there to remind them that this is their job, this is what they're there to do and this is why they're being looked after so well. When, 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 um, when jockeys abuse that, I think it's, 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 it's lack of education, but it's lack of understanding and, and it's a big lack of uh, desperation to try yeah. and feed their family. Uh, and that needs to be clipped more than anything. Yeah. I like the new rules. Don't get me wrong. I like the new rules are five times before the hundred just to yeah. try and remind the horse to straighten the horse in races. And that's why you see jockeys swapping from left hand to right hand 
to try and straighten those horses up to get them to change legs. Because when a horse gallops on the one leg, just like a, like a dog, and it's got to get around that bend, that first leg that hits the ground receives a lot of pressure, a lot of pressure, a lot of pressure, because they're leaning on that, and all that weight hits that one leg all the time. When we ask horses to change on their fresh leg, they change, and then that new leg, the opposite side, hits the ground for the first time. So it's just fresh. It's new, yeah. and it gets more energy out of the ground and out of the horse. That's what we talk about. Using the persuader to get horses to do that inside the last 200 metres so they can find that little bit extra and perform to their peak is an art. Going back to apprentice school and educating riders at track work, education, um, breaking in, uh, uh, track work, education, jump outs, trials, race day, it all starts there and then. If you explain this correctly and educate it right, more horse men and women that are coming through the system will use the whip less and less as we go on. It's as simple as that. Yeah. The old school of, of flogging a dead horse the, the same. Windmill. Okay? Yeah. Mate, I'll put it to you this way. If your mum had a cane on top of the fridge, right, you didn't put the bins out for the third time in a week. She gets the cane out and gives you one to remember next week. Don't forget next week. Yeah. It's a reminder. It's like, ah, don't stop, don't stop. Horse yeah. doesn't have a voice. But if, you, if your mum keeps hitting you, right, right, whip a, um, hit after hit after hit after hit for about two, three minutes, what are you going to do? He's going to lie down. Yeah, he's going to give up, yeah. Flogging a dead horse, that terminology. Yeah. It's a reminder. Ask them to respond. So when jockeys use the whips now and the jockeys that I coach, I ask them, let them respond to it because they've got to go through their gears. Balance yeah. win races more than physicality so um and 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 to match all of that and to understand all of that whether 600 400 200 which most thoroughbred horses are trained to run home on track work so that they build up that speed to finish at their top on race day that then you educate the whip to be able to do that on certain spots yeah. so the less whip the better for me and the best example at it at the moment would be damien oliver and has been for many years you watch how physical he is the last 200 metres and how many times he would use it. He'd have to use it before the 200. Yeah. And if it is, it's a reminder. And then he puts it away and he picks them up, picks them up, picks them up. And then it gets pretty aggressive that last probably 50 metres. Yeah. And it's every second or third stride if it's that. Yeah. You're allowing the beast to respond to something that you're asking it to do. This consistent whipping every stride, it's not going to make a horse go faster. And the sooner we cut that out, the better. Do you think the the punishment is fair? So obviously, if you if you overwhip your horse and it wins, it still holds the win. I think one of the main conjectures, especially from non racing people, I seem to find is that they think it's a bit odd that if you've broken the rule but you've won the race, the horse still wins the race. Is that maybe the greatest deterrent? If we went, well, you know what, you broke the rule, therefore your horse didn't win legitimately, and therefore you don't keep the win. It, it, it's it, it's it's um it's it's a discipline of the consistency, in the consistency of the rule. Clip them. Take it off them. Yeah. If that's the rule, that's the rule. Yeah. Take it off them. Simple as that. Should be more of it this day and age with the stewards. I mean, you mentioned in one breath that they're breaking the rule, rule, uh, rule but they're keeping the race. If I'm not a non-racing person, I don't understand what you're talking yeah. about. And I think especially if people are putting money into it, if your horse comes second and it rides legitimately, and your mate's horse wins, but it's been whipped for the last 100 metres non-stop. It's a bit like, well, hold on. Legit. It's legit. It's a legitimate uh, conversation that you, you, why can't we hold the race here? Fire in the protest. 
question, Keith. Yeah, I think so. Now I want to I want to touch on the Kentucky Derby. Recently was run. The winner returned a positive swab. It's been I was I was pressed by a few people to ask this. Do you think so? With returns a positive swab, obviously massively negative light goes on to that race. Do you think over here we're well enough protected to make sure that kind of stuff doesn't happen here in Australian racing? I know for a fact we've got the best laboratory testing laboratories in the world to to stamp out that. And Terry Bailey made sure that that happened when he was head steward here and in rain. Um, so he he made sure that, that we we had that testing and our laboratories were the best in the world to make it an even kill because. Yeah. Um, You've just got to make it, um, try and make it as perfect and as in terms of playing the level ground that we play on. And the integrity in our sport is the key. Um, the perception out there that we're all using drugs and this and that needs to be stamped out. We all need to be on the same playing field. And it comes down to the best horsemen and horsewomen getting the best out of their horses on the day. And I only think it's fair. Um, but with, Unfortunately, with athletes and horses, there's always going to be the grey cloud of cut-off time to uh, administer some pain relief for yeah. horses, which humans get as well. Yeah. So it's a, it's a very much a fine line. And um, unfortunately, uh, when, you cut it, when you cut it fine or when you, when you cheat, let's just say the cheats out there, yeah. they'll get caught. They have to this day and age. We've gotten better at that. And we're getting better at keeping those cheats out of our sport. Yeah, and I think I think that's key. We said again, the integrity of the sport is something that does get questioned. I think by a lot of outsiders, and we need to make sure that we're able to come back at those people and say, no, our sport is clean, and it's a it's a pleasure to watch because it is legitimate. It's a hundred percent legitimate. We're keeping the horses as safe as we can. Um, I want to touch on Jamie Carr really quickly? She is. I mean, I don't I don't think I can recall in my time watching a jockey have as good a time of it for as long as she is right now. I mean, if yeah. she. What what a what a poster, not just poster girl, but poster person for our sport. I mean, how amazing is she going at the minute? Yeah, she's a phenomenon. Um, she'll crack the ceiling for female jockeys, and in particular here in Victoria uh, and worldwide, uh, in the respect that she'll be the first female jockey to win a premiership, Victorian premiership um, in history. And that's something that we never thought we'd probably see in our lifetime due to the fact that the old school and the way racing was that um, they were never probably given the opportunity or looked upon as uh, being as strong uh, as the males or, or as good as them under pressure on, in the big events, on the best horses. But Jamie Carr has proven that female jockeys can ride against um, male jockeys uh, at the top of their sport and have an edge and um, and prove that uh, she can be the best because her balance, her timing and her understanding of horses is what uh, cuts her apart from most jockeys riding in the world right now from what I can see. Do you think she has the ability to tra almost transcend the sport and make the jump in always that mainstream media attention? She's like, to, she could you know, be she, a big she, to... she She has already, mate. Yeah. She has already. She's a freak. To go and ride five winners at Caulfield there the other oh, day to win multiple group, yeah, multiple group one races right now. Uh, handle the pressure uh, the way she has on the big stage. Uh, ride group one winners, Doncaster's uh, the first female jockey in history to win a group one race for Godolphin yeah. in the world. Continues to uh, break the records and she will this year. And when she does win the Victorian Jockeys Premiership, 
this season. It will be worldwide news and yeah. uh, just batten down the hatches. Get yeah. ready for it. I think, and I think the scary thing is, I mean, there's still plenty of time for her to get better, win more premierships, win all the group ones in front of her. She, it could, it, it's only going to get bigger and better for her at the minute. It's unbelievable where her career might end up in five, ten years. Well, she's naturally light. Okay, she doesn't have to worry about wasting anything like that. She's got a very good work-life uh, balance. Clayton Douglas, uh, soon to be married, jumps jockey, gold medals, what a ride this year. Vulnerable, yeah. uh, outstanding. They're buying horses, breaking in horses, educating horses as a, as, a, as a relationship couple that just love the horse racing industry. They're building a beautiful property out there on the peninsula. Uh, she's chosen just to ride three days a week or if she has to ride four, it's for a big stable that she's building an alliance with. Um, and um, she takes time away from it. And her hobby is, her hobby is um, obviously uh, uh, rebuilding, uh, rehabilitating racehorses away from racing. She loves the dressage. So she spends her, times on, uh, her time away from racing on horses, yeah. educating those horses. She's just a natural gift. But I was just talking to somebody about it the other day when she was riding Streetcar Stranger in the run and that horse normally likes to get back in a race. And she had she had that horse three pairs closer like she did with Mr Quickie when he yeah. was slow out of the barriers. She had him closer. But you watch how she does it on the long range, bounces out of the barriers and she just she's she just got this um, uh, mechanism that she tweaks horses to ping well and concentrate straight away. And that's an art. You can't teach that into a horse person, horse woman or man. Uh, she lands close. She gets them to run without burning too much petrol and, ga- and galloping out of their comfort zone and being closer on the speed. 90% of her winners are on speed dictating terms. So she takes the bad luck element of getting back, having traffic yeah. in front of you, out of the equation. Yeah, 100%. Three car stranger, um, just her seat in the saddle. Her feet are like flat. She's stealth-like and behind their ears, so the windbreak, all this sort of stuff that, that I used to think about as a jockey, tucking back in behind a horse's head where you're not getting wind caught in your face and there's more, uh, I suppose, of a, of a catch, wind yeah. catch, your shoulders, head and whatnot. She's stealth riding behind this horse's neck and she does not move on them. You very rarely see Jamie Carr uh, checking in a race, stopping momentum, and that's the key. Yeah, it's like you're driving back into that peak hour traffic on the Monash Freeway here in Melbourne. You're always on the brake, on the petrol, on the brake, on the petrol, on the brake, on the petrol. You're going to run out of petrol, you're going to run out of brakes. But if you can pick momentum and just roll in behind horses, uh, cars, or you can just put your left blinker on or your right blinker on without hitting the brakes, yeah, and losing that momentum, and then all of a sudden there's five car spaces, five links in front of you. Yeah, she's perfecting that better than anybody else in a race right now. And Streetcar Stranger was another example of that the other day. I think, yeah, I mean, in terms of trust, I don't think for punters you can trust many more jockeys at the minute more than Jamie Carr. You know she's going to give her run the best possible chance. And the minute more often than not, it looks like she's going to be right in it. She can make looking three wide, uh, no cover, look good right now. (laughs) Yeah. And there's uh, there's a reason behind it. Because she's riding a horse to suit a horse. Maybe there's, there's no speed in the race. So she's happy to sit three wide and it suits the horse and she wins on them. So there's always a, a reason and a purpose why Jamie Carr's doing something in a race at the moment. And ever since she won the Australia Cup oh, for David Hayes, uh, forget the horse's name, he's an old campaigner and won a couple of them. Uh, she's just gone from strength to strength now because she's getting on better horses. Her poise is much better. 
She sits and she waits. She counts to 10 at the top of the straight when she thinks she can win a race. She's allowing horses to wall up around her right shoulder when a lot of jockeys would be pressured to go from the 600. She'll wait. She'll let them wall up a neck, even half a length in front of her, still cuddle, and then she'll go. They've used their petrol. She's the last one to go with full of uh, petrol, uses the acceleration, kicks clear wins. Yeah. Beautiful to watch. Yeah, she's, oh, she's a marvel for the sport and she's been great for it. Lastly, now, before I let you go, Simon, we've got Goodwood this weekend. Without giving away too much, it's only Tuesday. Without giving too much, who are the ones we need to be looking out for in the Goodwood? Bohemoth's right. If Bohemoth's right, uh, he's the right horse to be winning the race, yeah. to be honest. If he can get back to his best home track, we know he's a beast. Towards his uh, preparation, last uh, in work, just went a little pear shape, but I think he's a yeah. better sprinter, fresh sprinter. Um, he's a serious horse. An instant celebrity, I think, uh, Jamie Carr goes on talking about Jamie Carr. Uh, her last start win, uh, backing up in seven days, master stroke, these stakes. Yeah. Give her a good roll out up on speed. Needed the run, bang, was right for the group one. She'll get a beautiful run in that small field. Yeah. And she'll be close enough. Um, so it's between those two, I would have thought. I'd like to be riding. Yeah, I think for me, Behemoth, I was on, on it in the autumn. I really liked the spring, so I followed through to the autumn. Obviously, not the ideal preparation, but I think, yeah, if Behemoth runs at its best, it's going to be incredibly hard to beat. Gee tries one I don't mind in Adelaide. Seems to find some form in, over there, so hard to ignore. But I think I think Sportsbet have it at 370 at the minute, which I'm looking at. That seems a bit under under for me. So I think instant celebrity Jamie Carr were talking about her. It'd be remiss of me now not to, not to follow her in on Saturday. There you go, brother. Hey, it's, uh, it's only a small, small select field, but uh, what a field it is. Like Geetra, what he was able to do in Sydney was terrific. He might be able to go to our next level uh, this time in. So, uh, And I'm sure the team would want to win their hometown in Group 1. Yeah, exactly right, mate. Well, look, thank you so much for coming on. It's been an absolute pleasure and an educational experience for me chatting to you today. It means the absolute well, mate. Thank you. <laughs> Hey, Benno, lovely brother. We finally got it done. Good luck on the punt. See you in the winner's circle. Thank you, mate. Good luck.